This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Angela Glover Blackwell. Angela is an attorney and founder in residence of Policy Link, a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity by lifting up what works. Her work changes lives and changes hearts. And our conversation was so special and enlightening. Please listen to her words, take them in, and channel them into action. Equity really looks at the outcomes that we want for people and it backs into what the inputs need to be. For people that are not black Americans in this country, uh, a lot of questions around what do I do and how do I do to authentically show my support. There's still a long way to go to improve how the medical field treats minority patients, especially African Americans. I have to say there's a despair and uh, sadness and certainly a level of anger and I'm horrified. I watched someone be murdered over eight and a half minutes. I'm not asking for cheer. I'm not asking for a hand up. I'm not asking for anything. I'm saying that we need a necessary investment in um, the, re the revitalization and the reset of a new America. I'm Angela Glover Blackwell, and I'm fighting to advance racial equity. Sorry, not sorry. Angela, in 1999, you founded PolicyLink. Will you tell me about the organization? What does it do? Why did you start it? And a bit about what its goals are? PolicyLink is a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity. When I started it 22 years ago, the goal then, and it continues to be the goal now, is to make sure that this is a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. That's how we define equity. And we understand a couple of things that had not been particularly the way that national policy organizations were operating. And that is that local leaders are national leaders. They're solving the nation's problems. And if we're going to have a national policy organization, it needs to be guided by the wisdom, voice, and experience of people who are working for change in their local communities. So that is literally what PolicyLink was founded to do, to be a bridge or a link from the wisdom and the aspirations of people working for change in their local communities to the worlds of policy, local, state, and national. We understand that policy happens in communities and that it is driven by race, that we live in a nation in which everything has something to do with race, that if you're talking about an educational system that educates all children, you're talking about one that is riddled with racism. 
And if we aren't talking about the way that system has discounted the value of black and brown children, you're not going to come up with a reform strategy or change strategy that's going to produce the outcome that we need. Same is true for transportation. 60% of people who use transportation in this nation, public transit, 60% of people who use public transit are people of color, but our public transit system is not designed around their needs. So we have focused on education, housing, health, transportation, water, all of the issues that determine your life outcomes and circumstances and make sure that the policies are informed by the need, is defined by people who need the most in terms of for policies to work for them, that we're building on the agendas that are put together by local advocates, and that we're bringing these issues into the national conscience. And so at the national level, we lead with race, we lead with racial equity, and we tie it to the economy because the economy controls so much of the destiny of people in terms of whether or not people can provide for their families, pursue their dreams, and live healthy lives. When you talk about equal access and opportunity, is that what you mean? Alyssa, I didn't use the word equal as I talked about policy link. I talk about equity. And equity really asks, what do we want Take the education system. We want all children to achieve at high levels, graduate, and go on to reach their full potential. Given the history of the nation, given the resources that are available based on race and income and geography in this country, equality probably won't get us there. Definitely, I would say that institutional racism is real and institutional racism exists. When you come from an affluent family, and that has been the case for many Caucasian families, they've come from pretty affluent families, you have opportunities that are unavailable to students who may come from lower lower socioeconomic situations. And this isn't to say that all minority groups, whether it's Hispanic or African Americans, come from lower socioeconomic groups, because that's not the case. You can't just say every child's going to reach their full potential if we make sure that their teachers have the same amount of preparation, that they're going to school for the same amount of time. You have to ask, where do we want to go? And then back into what's needed. And what's needed is probably a different level of investment. In schools where parents don't have money or time for violin lessons and piano lessons and excursions to the museum, the schools have to be able to provide that. In a system where many children come to school with asthma and diabetes and other issues, the educational system probably needs to have medical and health services related to it. In a school where children don't have access to broadband and computers at home, the schools might provide that. So it's not about equality. It really is about making sure that we're making the investment necessary to achieve the goal that we want. And that's equity. I want to really unpack this for my listeners. When you talk about racial and economic inequality in America, can you give us a quick like contrast of a hypothetical white child and a hypothetical non-white child in America and how their lives most probably play out differently because of the lack of equal access and opportunity? If we're thinking about a six-year-old Black child living in a neighborhood of concentrated poverty where almost everybody else is poor, and you think about a white child, same age in another part of the city, where most of the families who live there are middle class, upper middle class, where the parents have jobs that allow them flexibility, that child living in the 
poor black neighborhood is likely to live in a neighborhood where it is difficult to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables because it's very likely there is not a full service grocery store there. I don't think this was an accident, you know, not to build grocery stores in this area because the people here, you know, it's not just about black people, it's about poor people. What you'll find is corner stores that sell liquor, that sell chips, a convenience store. Whereas the white child in the middle-class white neighborhood is gonna find multiple grocery stores, lots of farmer's markets, lots of places where families can get fresh fruits and vegetables. The black child is likely to live in a neighborhood where there aren't a lot of safe places to play. There are not gonna be that many parks, and if there are parks, they probably aren't kept up. And because the city will allow homelessness to be able to pop up in that neighborhood. You may even have homeless people living in a park if it exists at all. And there may be trash and other things that really show that the city is neglecting that neighborhood. In the white part of town, they're going to be clean, sparkling clean playgrounds. There might even be playground workers there and all kinds of other things that make the neighborhood a safe place to play. That black child is likely to live in a neighborhood if it is a boy that as he gets older, he's gonna be made to feel like a criminal because the police are gonna be constantly stopping him, constantly making him feel that he is wrong for one reason or another, even though that boy is not gonna be doing anything other than playing. In that neighborhood, the white child assumes that he is a boy. As he grows up, he will think of the police as being his friends because they will be looking out for him. He probably won't see them that much at all, but if he does, he will not view them as a threat. And nothing about his experience is gonna make him think he is a criminal unless he does something very criminal. And it will have to be very criminal for him to get in trouble about it. Those are the kind of contrasts that we're talking about. Those contrasts then play out in terms of being able to have a sense of yourself and what it is you can accomplish, being able to have access to schools and job opportunities. If you think about it, most people get jobs through networks. But if you live in a poor community of concentrated poverty, it's likely that you don't know anybody who has a job. And so the idea of getting your first job at 12, 14, 15, 16, working in a grocery store, helping somebody do something, it's not going to happen. And so the differences start early, they continue through life, and they make a huge difference in terms of what people are able to do with their lives. I'm trying to pinpoint exactly like what I'm feeling in my body right now. And it's part, I think, rage and part sadness about all of this. And you speak to it in a way that I think everyone can understand. And thank God there is you. And thank you for all this work that you're doing. I'm so taken. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
I want to talk a little bit about in a letter that you wrote to the New York Times, you said it is only by truly understanding the challenges that minority residents face in reaching their potential as students, workers, entrepreneurs, and innovators that we can craft strategies to dismantle those barriers and connect them to opportunities to participate and contribute to their local economies. Talk to us about some of those strategies. Before I talk about the strategies, Alyssa, I want to go back a little bit and talk about the narrative that we're up against. I have a ton of strategies And a lot of other people do too. It's not as if people haven't figured out ways to overcome the inequalities and inequities that exist in society. What we lack is the public and political will to invest in those strategies and make them real. And part of that, I think, really has to do with the founding of the nation up to this date. That this is a nation that was founded on stolen land, Well, a United Nations investigator has said the United States should return some land to Native American tribes, including South Dakota's Black Hills, which is home to the famous Mount Rushmore Monument. James Anaya, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, conducted the U.N.'s first ever investigation into the plight of Native Americans living in the United States. Anaya has called on the United States to return some land stolen from Native American tribes. Anaya said such a move would be a step toward addressing systemic discrimination against Native Americans that continues to this day. There were indigenous people living here when Europeans came and took over. Stolen land, genocide. There was a conscious genocidal effort to wipe out the indigenous people who were here. Stolen land, genocide, human bondage. People were brought from Africa in bondage and slave labor and put to work for no pay for over 150 years. All of these things predated the founding of the nation. Now, if we could have just gotten over it, it would have been one thing. But we didn't just get over it. The nation developed a narrative to justify it. These were people who thought of themselves as good people, and they did these horrendous things. They had a narrative to justify it, and that narrative was based on a hierarchy of human value, a belief that some lives were worth more than other lives, that white lives were worth more than Black and Indigenous Native American lives. That hierarchy of human value narrative continues. It's continued in the back of the mind of the nation right up to this date, so that when slavery ended, that narrative allowed the country, with the sanction of the same government that had led to the fighting of the war, that led to the freeing of slaves, that same narrative allowed to come back to a system of oppression that included lynching, that included terror, that kept Black people down, that isolated Native people, Indigenous people. That same narrative, when Black people began to flee the South because of the lynchings and the brutality and the understanding that they were never going to be allowed to live in the place that they had built 
the place that they had built. And they started to move to the East and the Midwest and the West to find another life. That mentality of a hierarchy of human value placed discrimination on them. Isolated people in the worst areas of cities did not provide opportunities for home ownership or to build businesses. And who could have been more prepared to build businesses than people who had built the nation in terms of carpentry, in terms of other things, in terms of roofing? They couldn't start any businesses. And so that same narrative allows us as a nation to have a public education system in which poor black and brown children are getting peanuts in terms of funding for their schools. Some of their schools are dilapidated and run down. They have curriculum and books that are decades old. It is that hierarchy of human value that has allowed for all of this time to have police departments across the country that were given permission to over-surveillance, brutality, intimidation, and even killing people when the offense that they were accused of could be as slight as stealing $5 worth of something or riding their bicycle the wrong way on a street or jaywalking or just looking black. It allowed police officers to be able to kill them and get away with it. That's that hierarchy of human value. So when you ask about strategies, before I get to strategies, I want people to understand that we have to have a mind shift in this country. We have to shift the minds of the American people away from thinking that some lives are not worth anything. And to begin to not only understand that every life is precious, Black lives matter. And until we understand that Black lives matter, all lives will never matter. We've got to make that shift. And then once we make that shift, we have to make another shift. And it is this. We're becoming a nation in which the majority of the people will be people of color, Black, Latinx, Asian, Native, other, by 2044. Already, the majority of all children who live in the United States of America, 18 and under, are of color. The majority of all children in the public school system, particularly in the early years, are of color. That this is nothing to be afraid of. This is a gift to the United States of America, because what could be more important in a global economy than to be a world nation in which the people in your nation are connected to the globe through kinship, through language, and through custom? We in the United States continue to be a young nation. As so many European nations are aging and they're wringing their hands about what to do with this old population, the United States continues to be a young nation because People who are Latino, the biggest group of people of color, the average age is 28. The average age for white people is 42. So it is because that we are so diverse that we are so young, which is a good thing. People who are Black, Asian, and Latino are three times as likely to start a small business as people who are white. Three times as likely because of the innovation, the creativity that comes when you're building, when you're bringing a family up, when you're building community. And so the other part of the story, and this is a good part, is the fate of the nation is dependent on the very people who are being left behind. But if we get it right for them, we get it right for the nation. That we finally will have a democracy that we can stand on the world stage with and be proud of because it is a democracy that operates within the context of difference. And that is 
as a democracy to be proud of. That we will continue to have a strong and vibrant middle class if people of color become middle class. But if they don't become a middle class, there'll be no middle class. That businesses will continue to get the innovation that they need as this innovative group of people who are still building, still becoming, bring their innovation and their creativity to business, to creation, to the economy. And so now, if we understand one, that we've got to overcome the narrative of hierarchy of human value, that we have to understand that if we get it right for the very people who've been left behind, we get it right for everybody. And then we can apply the strategies. So when we talk about strategies, what we have to know is that we live in a nation in which where you live is a proxy for opportunity. That if you live in a low-income community of concentrated poverty, you don't have access to the things that you need, whether it's a job or transit or education or health care. This is Philip Alston, the United Nations point man on poverty. His job usually involves visiting the world's least developed countries. But earlier this month, Alston flipped the script. My report demonstrates that growing inequality and widespread poverty, which afflicts almost one child out of every five, has deeply negative implications for the enjoyment of civil and political rights. The country he's talking about might not be what you'd expect. It's the United States of America, and his criticism, made to the United Nations Council on Human Rights, goes much, much further. The United States has the highest income inequality in the Western world, and this can only be made worse by the massive new tax cuts overwhelmingly benefiting the wealthy. We need to make sure that every community in this country is a community of opportunity and that everybody gets to live near opportunity. That means that all of the places in the country that have good schools and grocery stores and playgrounds and transit systems, that we need to have affordable housing in those communities so they're not just available to people who are high income, but they can be available to people who have lower incomes. We need to make sure that our regions have wonderful public transit systems so that you don't have to have a car to access a job and that you have a system that gets you quickly to work. There's some places where people live 90 minutes by public transit from their jobs on average if they live in a low-income community of color. We need to fix that so that we have a fast, efficient transit system that allows people to access opportunity all over. We need to have linkage programs between the community colleges, which are often the first higher education opportunities that people of color have. The community colleges have linkage connection programs to good jobs in other areas of the region so that once you finish, you can quickly move into a training program or a job or get prepared. That's how we begin to really invest and invest with urgency. But here is the thing. We need to make sure that every community is a community of opportunity. There is no reason to have some places where the schools are terrible. We need to invest the resources so that all the schools are of high quality and allow children to reach their full potential. We need to make sure that every community is protected from environmental toxins. So much of what we worry about in terms of the environmental degradation hits low-income people of color first, whether it's fire or flooding or being exposed to asthma triggers or water that is not safe. We need to make sure that every community is environmentally safe and healthy. We need to make sure that every community has what 
we need in terms of access to healthy food. All it takes is grocery stores and farmers markets to be there to provide high quality produce and meats and all of those things. We need to make sure that communities are safe and that we do not have police or other people going in, intimidating, labeling, belittling people who live there. We need to ask what makes communities safe, trust, support, healthy places for children to be able to be. So those kind of strategies are absolutely important. And we need to understand this. We are not a poor country and we need to stop acting like one. We have more wealth than any other country on the face of the earth. And yet we have extreme poverty and neglect. We need to put our resources where the need is and understand that while that is the right and moral thing to do, it is also the economically intelligent thing to do. That the country will not thrive economically if we don't invest in the future. We need to make sure that we're using our resources to build a sustainable, inclusive America. So much of what you said resonated. First of all, in this country right now, children are going to bed hungry. That's first of all. And I want my listeners to really, really hear this. Children in this country are starving. Also, when you talk about environmental justice, the only thing that can help any kind of sickness, whether it came from air pollution or poor water quality or contaminated water, is nutrition. And Flint is a perfect example of this. Deindustrialization had um, a, a major role to play um, in a place like Flint. Um, the water crisis there happened because the city was running out of money. It was declared to be in a state of fiscal emergency, and that's why they had to divert water. Um, they had to use water from the Flint River instead of from you know, the, the Lake Huron or the Detroit River, what that, that they were using before. And the reason that the city was running out of money is because industry had left. There were the manufacturing plants had closed um, due to you know the effect of globalization and cost cutting and unfair trade practices. And so you had manufacturing leave the city. They ran out of money. They couldn't maintain their public sources, their public resources. And then the Flint water crisis happens when they try to cut costs even more and save themselves money. Um, so I think the link is pretty direct, actually, between deindustrialization and something like the Flint water crisis. In Flint, when children were poisoned from the water and had lead poisoning, they had to be prescribed vegetables from their doctors in order to get vegetables into Flint because it's a food desert. I really want people to think about that. The fact that children could not get their hands on broccoli because of it being a food desert and there being no supermarkets. I really want my listeners to think about a world without a supermarket when the only fruit and produce that you can find is in a 7-Eleven in that bowl where there's like two apples and three bananas. And then also, when you think about access to healthcare and what is going on right now in this country as far as the pandemic goes and how COVID is affecting people of color differently than white people in America. Can you speak to that actually a little bit for me, Angela? Absolutely. I have been so sad over these months as I have seen extraordinary suffering and death in black and brown communities and in white and native and Asian communities. It's been all across the country, but it has been disproportionately communities of color.
COVID-19 pandemic has greatly exposed these pre-existing problems with um, systemic racism and structural inequalities and lack of access to health care that African-Americans face. Pre-existing conditions make individuals more susceptible to the disease, such as hypertension, obesity, diabetes, and asthma. Issues outside of access to healthcare are what causes someone to be exposed to begin with. And so I think we're seeing a lot of African-Americans that are in essential positions, whether they're running public uh, transit in our cities, whether they're nurses' aides. Um, and so when you have socioeconomic inequities that occur, especially in African-American communities, pandemics such as COVID-19 um, will greatly just show how this uh, community is uh, gonna be impacted. It is precisely because people were not as healthy as they could have been coming into it. And I say could have been because it is the disinvestment in people's health that caused people not to be as healthy as they could have been. Not having access to doctors, not having access to health insurance, not having access to what people need to stay healthy, and being overrepresented in the populations of diabetes and asthma and high blood pressure and those things that lead to bad outcomes. You have been talking about part of it when you talk about people not having access to fresh fruits and vegetables, having to eat what you can find at a fast food restaurant or at a convenience store. That is no way to build a healthy diet. And the absence of a healthy diet is what leads to diabetes and high blood pressure and some of these things. Which is what people are claiming are being the deciding factor between who lives from COVID and who dies diabetes and heart disease. Yes, it is. so we have seen extraordinary morbidity and mortality from COVID in Black and Brown and Indigenous communities because the nation has underinvested in the health of the people of the nation. No access to health care, no access to the things that help people to live healthy lives. It has been horrendous and it has awakened a lot of people to the impact of discrimination and neglect. And that has been a positive thing. There are a lot of people who are beginning to understand racism in a way that they had never understood it before. But racism wasn't just what people carry in their hearts. Racism what was baked into society, baked into our systems, baked into our agencies, baked into the way that we have allocated resources. And so very sad thing, a glimmer of hope because people are starting to see. Something that helped them see was also the impact of COVID on the economy. Having to shut down the economy, lock down, and people saw who the frontline workers were, who the essentials workers are. They see who's helping some people to stay in because food is being delivered. But the people who are having to go to the grocery stores, who are having to be out there coming in contact with other people, it's another reason why people who are black and brown and of color have suffered so much because they couldn't just go home and work from home. They had to go to work. And so they were more exposed and continuously exposed. And it didn't just expose them. It meant they were bringing it back home to elderly relatives who lived there, bringing it back home to children. But we also saw something that was a glimmer of hope, and that is our interconnectedness. Because if low-income people of color who are frontline workers can't go to work, America can't go to work. And therefore, we understood that our fates were intertwined, and that was so important. And then on top of that, because people were locked down and they were watching the television or they were watching online, everybody saw the callous murder of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis. And people saw 
with their own eyes what Black people have been complaining about for decades, and that is that the police do not value their lives, that they over-police, they are over-violent. And they could see by looking at the officer who killed George Floyd with his hand in his pocket, staring casually into the camera, that this is what he does. He was just going to work. There was nothing extraordinary about this. He wasn't nervous about what he was doing. That opened the eyes of people to another thing, that the racism that people have been talking about is perpetuated in a government-sanctioned way. And we've got to stop it. It has got to stop. With our tax dollars. In our name. In our name. With our, with tax, our tax dollars. dollars. Black people are being brutalized and murdered. And so this notion that we have to stop has helped to create a movement in which more white people were out on the streets saying Black Lives Matter than Black people were in many communities across the country. That more foundations and corporations and civil and civic institutions are asking, how can we be part of the solution? That people are wanting to know about the history. They're wanting to know what it means to have something be structural racism and systemic racism and what are the differences. And if we can just keep this going for more than the period of our lockdown, for more than the period of COVID, if we can keep it going into the years in front of us, we might be able to finally turn the corner on racism in America. Do you think that this neglect that has led to people of color being disproportionately affected by COVID, do you think it is deliberate? Do you think that it is an unconscious part of systemic racism that now we're awakened to? Like, what are your thoughts on if this neglect is deliberate I think that the nation is understanding at a broad level for the first time what it means for racism to have become structural and systemic. What it means is the racism that was carried in the hearts of white people for so long and continues to be carried in the hearts of many white people to this day. But that personal racism, that disdain for people who were black, for people who were brown, it is now baked into society. It is baked in. So whether or not you get rid of it in your heart or not, it still is baked into our system in the way that we fund programs that mostly serve people of color. The fact that we're stingy with those programs, that our expectations with those initiatives is so low in terms of what we expect from our schools. You know, people can look at the school data and see that Black children are performing at half the level of white children and say, oh, well, that's progress. That's good. We'll just leave it there. That's baked racism. To be able to say that we're going to have a healthcare system in which we have a wonderful healthcare system for people who have money, most of whom are white, and that we're going to have an inadequate healthcare system for people who are low income. That's baked in racism. In July of 1964, Martin Luther King looked over the shoulder of Lyndon Johnson as they addressed socioeconomic disparities in access to public accommodations. The civil rights legislation was landmark. But as we've gone forward, specifically as it relates to health, probably more than biology or genetics, these social factors now have to be addressed as it relates to the disparities in cardiovascular health. If you look at some of the latest data as it relates to cardiovascular health, you will see that African Americans have more hypertension, earlier onset, more premature hypertension, death from heart failure, premature myocardial infarction and death from strokes. 
you're allowing people based on the color of their skin to have access to less or sometimes no access at all. To be comfortable with a community that has sprawling suburban neighborhoods and have people in the urban area living in unsafe, lead-infected housing unsafe, overcrowded conditions and think that is okay, that we're not making that a priority. We're not doing anything about improving that housing or making sure that people have access to opportunity. But that is baked in racism. Structural racism means that you have allowed the assumptions about people based on racist attitudes to move from your heads into the systems of health, education, welfare, housing, economic development, in which we're undervaluing lives. We are carrying the hierarchy of human value into our systems, and we fund them at a level that we think is adequate, given what we have thought about those people, even if we don't feel that way about those people anymore, since the racism is baked in and therefore has a lack of its own, and it becomes a structural part of society so that people just accept it as the way things are. I think that people understand that that is why so many Black and Brown people had pre-existing conditions. I think people are starting to understand that there is something wrong with the fact that people who are black and brown are in the lowest paid jobs without any access to what they need to be able to take care of their children. I think people are understanding that as frustrating as it is to be at home with your children while they're trying to go to school, for people who can't even be at home and have to leave the children alone with nobody to help them get online or to understand what to be able to do, that some children are just sitting at home doing nothing because the broadband doesn't go to their neighborhood. And if it goes to their neighborhood, they don't have a computer and nobody has taken the time to make sure that every child has one. That is how racism gets baked in and becomes structural and systemic. I want to shift gears for a second. And everything you're saying is going to be incredible for my listeners to hear this episode. Let's just say that. We are in an election year. And without talking specifically about any candidate or party or even any individual election, can you just talk about underrepresentation for people of color in government at all levels and what that means for our communities? Well, It is so important for us to try to really build a democracy that we can be proud of. It has to be a democracy in which all people can vote, are encouraged to vote, are assisted in voting, can see voting as their right, and they don't have to do anything unusual to exercise that right. Voting day ought to be a day off so that people don't have to take time off work, not get paid when they go to vote. It should be a time when people can easily go. It should be a day off. We should also make sure that people can register to vote right up to the moment they vote. Antoine Johnson tried getting an ID Tuesday so he can start applying for jobs and be able to vote, but he didn't have the proper paperwork. So he'll have to wait. It's important. It's the most important. That's why. That's basically. But first and foremost, I'm going to vote. That's what I'm definitely going to get it. I'm struggling, but I'm trying to make it work. But access to a photo ID has proven to disproportionately impact African-Americans. Nationally, 95% of white people have a valid photo ID, compared to 87% of African-Americans. By that measure, in Wisconsin, nearly 32,000 voting-aged African-Americans do not have a valid ID. 
We should make it easy, not hard. And people ought to be rewarded for voting so that we say we want you to vote. So let's make sure that we really breathe life into democracy and the cornerstone of it becomes something that is sacred, that is encouraged, that is allowed, that we are promoting. And the reason that we want to do that is so people can have the representatives that they feel actually represent their interests. They need to have access to real information about who's running, what ballot measures are on, what they mean for them. We need to make sure that educating people about what they're voting for becomes just a part of life. I was struck by early on when that show, America's Got Talent, where you could go on and vote for who you thought had talent. When that show was on, one day I happened to be walking in New York City. I hadn't paid much attention to the show, but I was just walking along and I heard twice people talking around me, total strangers, about who they were going to vote for that night. And I went home and I watched the show. And what was so interesting is how much information you had about the people that you were going to vote for. You got to see their talent. You got to be able to judge it for yourself. You got to find out a little bit about their background and who they were so that when people went on, they didn't blindly just say, I like that name or that's a pretty face. They actually were voting for something. And I thought, I'm hearing more people talk about voting for America's Got Talent than I hear about talking for the mayor. And you know what else? The producers of that show have to fact check so that they're not putting out disinformation or false information about the people that are competing. So we need to treat voting in that way. That's important. And then we need to really make sure that we hold our elected officials accountable. We need to know what it is they stand for. We should vote for them based on what they stand for. And we should punish them by taking them out of office if they're not producing what they said they were going to produce. We need to look at what they're doing. So when it comes up again, you don't get rewarded for lying. You don't get rewarded for falling down on the job. You don't get rewarded for having acted as if you didn't say that. We need to hold our elected officials accountable. And then the people who know what needs to happen need to run for office, need to run for your school board. You need to get on a commission in your town so that we really make democracy something that we all are living. That's the kind of thing that we need to do. Well, PolicyLink's motto, which I love, is lifting up what works. So what exactly works when it comes to recruiting and electing more people of color? What works is for us to have public financing of campaigns so that people of color can run without regard to whether or not they happen to be individually wealthy or they happen to be bought and purchased by some business that wants to put them forward to advance their interests. With a political campaign finance system that is corrupt, and that is increasingly controlled by billionaires and special interests. I fear very much that, in fact, government of the people, by the people, for the people, is perishing in the United States of America. People need to be able to run based on the interests of their communities, and they need to be able to get out and talk with their communities and make themselves heard through a public financing system. That really does work. Getting money out of politics so that the money that comes in is public money that helps puts everybody on an even footing in that regard. 
We also need to be able to help people of color understand the road to getting into politics. And it's often starting first with commissions and boards and things like that, things that you can just get appointed to. And there is a boards and commission initiative that's run by a group called Urban Habitat in Oakland, California, that actually recruits people who are often neighborhood leaders and gets them into a year-long program of understanding what the commissions and boards are and what they do on each one of them and what happens and who are the people who have the power to appoint. So you get your city council person or somebody to appoint you. And when you show up, you actually understand how to be effective in that regard, representing your community. So getting more people in boards and commissions, that's another thing that really works. I think another thing that works is to support people when they are putting themselves forward as community leaders. When people indicate, particularly young people, that they're interested in community transformation, people who are elected officials, people who understand politics, need to start mentoring those young people, encouraging them to take leadership, moving them to the next step, introducing them around. So when it comes time, their known entities and the people in the community are happy to see them move up. These are the kind of things that get more people involved. And we all benefit from having people who bring that kind of authenticity, that commitment to create a better world. We all do better when when they get into office, they continue to be supported with public dollars through public financing, and they continue to serve the needs of the people. Okay, so here's the big question. How can I be a better ally? We've been hearing a lot about allyship during this time. There's so many people who are white who are waking up to the harsh realities of what it means to live in a society that is governed by racism. And people want to help. And often they talk about allyship, and I appreciate that. And when I hear it, I often think, but you're not helping me, you're helping yourself. Racism is not my problem, it is the problem of white people. It is white people who hold it, who perpetuate it, who've allowed it to become baked in. Racism is an ugly thing and is a problem that white people have, that white America has. And so I wanna help you. I wanna help people who are white to understand that they have a problem that I would love to see them solve. Because if they solve the problem of racism, it's gonna make my life better, it's gonna make the lives better for so many people who are suffering because it is such a harsh, system, but it is a problem for white people, for a nation that has been majority white all these years. And so we all need to be essential in solving this problem. And people who are Black and white and Latinx and Asian and Native American, all of us need to understand that the nation will not thrive till we get rid of this stain that the nation will not tap its full potential till we get rid of this system that is holding back the potential of nearly half of the people who were in it. That the nation cannot be proud of democracy until it's democracy that works for all and the economy will not reach a sustainable, prosperous future unless we can figure out how to make it fully inclusive. And so everybody needs to make this their top agenda. If it makes people feel that 
you are doing it to help people who are black and brown, that is a good thing. But I think that the attention will stay longer, that the ability to make a real difference will last longer if we think of it as something that we are doing for ourselves individually, for our children, for our grandchildren, for the nation. We are doing this because the United States of America is suffering right now what it means to be exclusive. That right now, this terrible divisiveness that makes everybody's stomach churn, it is happening because we're not embracing of the other. It is happening because too many people in the nation are trying to hold on to something that is false. There are many white people in this nation who are being nostalgic for a time that never was while they're avoiding a future that is inevitable. They're being nostalgic for a time when they think that everything was wonderful. But back in the 50s, the 40s, the 60s, the 70s, that was a time, most of it, when discrimination was legal. Back in the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s, Black children had to drink from a separate water fountain. Black people had their lives threatened if they tried to vote. Black people were kept in many jobs and not able to tap into the extraordinary gifts which the nation sees every time you give Black people a chance. They do something magnificent for the nation to see. And so it was not wonderful when people couldn't tap into that. It was not wonderful when Mexican children, the only job they had in their parents' head was picking vegetables for a dollar a day. That's not wonderful. And so we need to stop being nostalgic for a time that never was. America's never been wonderful. It has done some great things. It has built a highway system. It invested in an infrastructure. It built an educational system for white children that was extraordinary. It built a healthcare system for white people that was extraordinary. It needs to take that extraordinary capacity and now for the first time apply it to everybody and think how wonderful America would be. Stop being nostalgic for a time that never was. Embrace a future that is inevitable. Embrace the people that are the ones that the fate of the nation is now dependent upon and understand this is the work of a nation, not part of a nation. This is the work of a nation. So there came a point for me in the Me Too movement that I felt it was time to enlist men into the movement. And I felt almost that without enlisting men, that we weren't going to succeed to dismantle misogyny and sexism, especially when both of those things seem so baked in to a culture of masculinity. I'm wondering what you think about, will we be able to dismantle racism without enlisting white people? Or do you think that for this movement to succeed, we need to include white people in the conversation, in the strategy for building a better democracy with more equity? We cannot dismantle racism without white people being all in that fight. It is incumbent upon white people to join the struggle to dismantle racism. It is a problem that has been created by white people. It is a system that places white people at an advantage in society. 
And it is a system that is perpetuated by white people. So white people have to be all in for us to dismantle it. But what they don't need to think is that they are going to lose when that happens. I think that this fanning of fear, thinking that equity, which we've been talking about, is a zero-sum game. Equity, just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential benefits everyone. It is not a zero-sum game. But this is the thing that we have to remember as white people join, and they are joining in droves. Hundreds of thousands, millions of white people are coming to the movement to build a fully inclusive society. And this is the thing that we have to remember, that people of color have deep understanding of what it means to operate in a system that excludes them, that marginalizes them, that oppresses them. And their voice and their leadership is essential to getting it right. You can't have a movement in which white people say, we got this, this is important now, just let us do it. Wish it could happen that way, but it won't happen authentically, effectively, and sustainably if it is not guided by the wisdom, voice, and experience, and insights of those people who have suffered the brunt of it as it's hit them full force. And so being able to follow, being able to join Black Lives Matter and follow the leadership that is Black, that is saying this is what we need to do, being able to truly listen to people in communities, to talk about the things that they need, that they want to have addressed, being able to join arm in arm, side by side as co-equals in fashioning where we want to go, understanding that everything needs to be diverse and integrated, not just because it's the right thing to do, it certainly is, but it is the effective thing to do, that we get it right, that we tap the pool creativity if we do that. And it is not a zero-sum game. I think of it as the curb cut effect. Those cutouts in the sidewalk that are there because of the advocacy of people with disabilities. It was people with disabilities in wheelchairs who became advocates to get those curbs have a cut in it so that wheelchairs could move around the city. Now, people with disabilities were getting rights, but for people in wheelchairs, those rights were hollow if they couldn't actually maneuver. But think about those curb cuts in the sidewalk. How many times have you been pushing the stroller and been so glad you didn't have to pick that contraption up from one corner to the next? How many times have workers had their work ease, whether they were pulling wagons and pushing carts and they didn't have to try to maneuver? How many times have we just had our shoulders go down when our seven-year-old new bike riders are traversing the neighborhood sidewalk to sidewalk, not having to ride in the street? And think about this, those curb cuts save millions of lives because nine out of 10 unencumbered adults cross the street at the corner because of the orientation of the curb cut to the corner. The curb cut effect, what it shows is when we solve problems with nuance and specificity for those who are most burdened, for those who are most marginalized, for those who are most vulnerable, we come up with solutions that benefit everybody. The benefits cascade out. Let me give you one more example. Not smoking in public places. Now, we know that millions and millions, hundreds of millions of lives are saved because people aren't smoking in public places. That started because of the advocacy of flight attendants on airplanes. It used to be you could smoke on an airplane. Passengers complained and they developed a no smoking section. It barely protected the people in the no smoking section because the smoke went everywhere, but it didn't do a thing for the flight attendants. Finally, the flight attendants hooked up with Ralph Nader, famous consumer advocate, and he was able with them, they were able to stop 
stop to ban smoking on airplanes. That was the beginning of the movement to ban smoking in public places. Again, an example of solving the problem with nuance and specificity for those who are most burdened by the problem. Now, if we could get that right in the economy, the people who are most burdened by the economy are the people who are low income, of color, having difficulty to get good jobs. And when they get jobs, they're discriminated against in terms of wages. If we could get rid of the racial wage gap, and that does not mean that everybody makes the same. It means the bell curve of what we make would not have a racial difference. I think the racial wealth gap speaks to the fact that we still have a long way to go to achieve ideals of equality in this country. The racial wealth gap is a measure of the white family and the African-American family that's right smack dab in the middle, the median. The median white household's wealth, their savings, assets, minus their debts, is $171,000. The median black household's is $17,600. If we could just get rid of discrimination, the racial gap, in 2017, the GDP in America would have been $2.8 trillion higher. $2.8 trillion higher, just getting rid of discrimination in terms of wages. And so equity is not a zero-sum game. It actually benefits everybody. Just take public transit. If we really invested in public transit, and the people who need it most are low-income people of color. Those overwhelmingly are the users of public transit. If we really invested in it and people had access to transit that connected them to jobs, employers would find that people would be on time more, that people would miss work less often. We would find that we had access to a more diverse pool of workers to be able to hire any place. People would be able to move back and forth in terms of being able to get back home in time to help kids with homework. Broad societal benefits. Solve problems for those who are most marginalized, most discriminated against, most burdened, most vulnerable, and the benefits cascade out. So we need to understand that. It's a real possibility. I love the curb cut effect. That is brilliant and true. I want to give you the opportunity to talk about your podcast, which, I mean, I can't imagine how incredible your podcast must be. It's called Radical Imagination. First, explain the title, which I think is beautiful, and then tell us about why you started it and what you're doing with it. Thank you. The Radical Imagination podcast, and people can hear it wherever they get their podcasts. I named it Radical Imagination because I think that's what we need in this moment, that we have gotten to a point where it's clear that we need to be different. We need to transform this society. And people of color have been holding back just as people not of color have been sort of accepting the status quo. And we all need to understand that now that we're having this breakthrough of thinking, that we really can become a fully inclusive society, but we can't with our existing systems operating as they do. We need to unleash our radical imaginations and think about what we want and begin to put that out as the North Star. So some of the things that we have talked about are abolishing the police, reparations, guaranteeing a job to everybody who wants one. It sounds like a radical idea. We did it back in the 30s after the Great Depression. We have done it before. We need to do it again. We talked about guaranteeing a basic income to everybody. But we've also looked into issues to see what people are doing. When we talk about alternatives to police, talked about a program called Advanced Peace, where they actually are getting young men 
in the community in Richmond, California, and other places who have been involved in gun violence and getting them involved in a fellowship program to set goals for themselves. And if they begin to meet those goals, they then begin to get a stipend of $1,000 a month. And it's so interesting that the people in there, well, first of all, one of the big deals is they were still alive after years in the program. They hadn't been killed by gun violence, but they hadn't gone to jail. They hadn't gone back to jail. And some of them had gotten in school and going on that we need to have radical imagination about the new systems, but we have radical imagination about the people who have been brutalized by our existing system, about what they can do, what they can contribute. So radical imagination, I think that people will enjoy listening to it. This conversation has given me so much hope. It's been a roller coaster of emotion for me, but I think I've ended in a place of total hope. So I'm wondering, what gives you hope? I think that I am optimistic. That's just my nature. I think that because I'm optimistic, that's what drew me to wanting to be an agent for change. That's what made me want to focus on social change. I just believe things could be better and that putting in my piece of the puzzle would be helpful. So I've always been hopeful, but I'm really hopeful now because I was a girl during the civil rights movement. I came out of college into the Black Power movement and the anti-Viet War movement. So I've been involved in movements all my life, but I have never seen a moment where people were willing to talk about racism the way they're talking about it now, where people were willing to explore and sit with the history, where things like reparations actually just don't become ridiculous in conversation. People want to explore it more, where we're understanding structural baked-in racism and trying to think about how to fix it. So even though this is a dark moment for the nation, people are dying, the economy is in deep trouble, we're so divided, this is also a moment where transformation could be happening. And I'm feeling the pull toward it being a transformational moment, and that gives me a lot of hope, Alyssa. Thank you, Angela, for being here with me and for sharing your wisdom and your beauty and your heart and your soul and for not giving up on us and continuing the fight. This is about you. This is about us. I'm a father of four amazing kids. A dancer, but only in my bedroom. A believer in the power of stories. Soy bilingüe, casi trilingüe. An engineer. A nerd. Soy lesbica. Yo soy amiga. Japanese. Korean. Palestinian. A German national. An immigrant. East Asian American woman of color. Ana Zemiltak. Anatomo, watashi no doryo desu. We bake amazing things together. We aspire to bring joy to the entire world. But you and I inhabit different worlds. You and I have access to different spaces. Unless you've experienced it, you can never fully understand what it's like to be stuck between two cultures. To pretend to be someone else in order to be safe. To grow up in South America and Spanish, and at 19 having to relocate to the U.S. and live in English. To be a black gay man from the rural South. And be the only one in the room. Unless you've experienced it yourself, you can never really know what it's like to have to listen to someone be degrading to your race and be the only person of that race in the room. To lose friends, family, co-workers, simply because you wanted to be who you are. To not know whether you can call the country that you love home. To be the father of a trans daughter. I think we all have a responsibility to make the world that we live in a little bit better. You know, this conversation got me thinking a lot about the idea of equity. I have always been a person who has considered herself a fighter for equality, 
and equality under the law matters and is something worth fighting for. But it's not the same as equity. It's not the same as being vested in society, and equity is just as important to be fighting for. I'll always be grateful to Angela for helping me see the difference. So what does an equitable society look like? It doesn't look like one where police are able to kill unarmed people of color at wildly disproportionate rates. It doesn't look like one where access to healthy food is almost impossible because food deserts exist in the middle of our poorest communities. And it doesn't look like one where our poorest communities are made up primarily of people of color. These problems are existential in America. The fact that they exist is a blinding reminder of our many failures. They prove we have not even once lived up to the potential set forth for us in our Constitution. And they are things we need to fix, not by dictating solutions, but by empowering the people who are suffering from them and giving them the resources to enact solutions they have already proposed. Fixing these problems makes all of us better. It makes all of us stronger, smarter, more inclusive, more whole. It is a challenge we all have to take on and keep fighting every single day. Because at the end of the day, it's simple. In America, all of us matter. Or none of us matter. Thanks for listening. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 